Is that good? Sounds good. All right, so God is continuing to argue against idolatry. You see, the people of God that he's writing to, that God is speaking to, are in a land that is riddled with idols. It is a land that is filled with idolatry. Everywhere you go are idols. So what God is saying is that he is the only, one and only supreme God. And that there is, and that idols are worthless. And so he does this by magnifying himself, by showing how great he is and how worthless idols are. In other words, you can summarize this whole chapter in this. God is the incomparable God. He is not comparable with anyone else. And that's really just a, a summary of this chapter. That's how he fights against idolatry. Is he show you God is incomparably great. Now, we might have noticed that this is a very prolonged argument against idols. And you might wonder, aren't we starting to get it? Don't we, at this point, begin to understand what idols are? Why do we have to prolong this? Idols are bad. God is good. Turn from idols towards God, right? It was that simple. <laughs> well, it was very likely that God's own people in Babylon in some ways, we're giving in to idolatry. And it is very likely that all of us in this room are fighting against idols daily. Some of us are even giving in to idols. And so although we might think we're in a different place, we might think we've heard it already, we have not heard it enough. We need to understand better the problem of idolatry. And so God is continuing to argue. In fact, he will pretty much end his argument against idolatry in this chapter. And then he will bring it to a conclusion in the next chapter. In the judgment against Babylon. He'll show us the end of idolatry next week. And this is the problem. We often don't recognize idolatry in our own lives, do we? We have such a tough time recognizing it in our lives. Um, and maybe the problem is we don't want to recognize it. That could really be the problem, couldn't it? It's not, it's not merely that we can't see it, but that we don't want to recognize it. And it's so common that it's almost natural. We feel like it's the way it's supposed to be. Because it's all around us in this world, just like the exiles in Babylon. And there could not be a more serious problem than idolatry. The most deadly thing in the world is idolatry. Listen to what Hosea said in Hosea 8, verse 4. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. You see, 100% of the time, if idolatry runs its course, if we do not fight against it and it rules over us, it will eventually destroy us every single time. We need to be able to identify it, and we need to be able to deal with it. And this is why the Bible speaks to us so clearly, directly, and so often about it. What a kind God we have. 
what a gracious and kind God that he doesn't leave us in our clouded um, thinking. But he removes the clouds from us as he speaks to us in his word. I'm reading Jeremiah with my kids right now. And it speaks of judgment in almost every single chapter. (laughs) Uh, 52 chapters, and it's exaggeration, but almost every chapter deals with judgment. And I asked my kids this past week, I asked if they thought it was unhelpful or even mean to be reading this to them. Because I realized that they're hearing judgment after judgment after judgment. And I think they just looked at me with blank stares. (laughs) What are you talking about, Dad? (laughs) So you might ask, are there not better ways to teach your children? And, And obviously, you don't have to go through Jeremiah. That's not what I'm saying. But are there better ways to reach your children? Are there more accessible ways to teach your children than going through books like Jeremiah? And so I asked them, if someone were running into a fire, someone that you loved, would you not continually warn them of the fire that's ahead of them? Don't we every day need to be warned about the judgment of God that's coming? Don't we every, every day need a perspective? Isn't it good to hear this all the time? If we love people, we're going to warn them that there's a real fire coming. And it's almost neglect if we do not. So like the warning of the coming judgment, so here the warning of the dangers of idolatry is something every faithful minister needs to continue to repeat again and again and again. If you keep running towards idols, you'll be burned for eternity. And should we not warn each other? Maybe God is going to open your eyes to see the terrible direction that you are running in. And maybe God will help free you from your idols so you can serve God effectively. So if you're engaged in idolatry or starting to flirt with it, run at this very moment for salvation to God while you still can. It is insanity to say to someone who is about to be burned up in a fire, it's insanity to say, well, just think about it, take your time, look at the options. That's insanity. (laughs) You say, no, run to Christ. He is the only one who can save you. So God wants us to see that he is incomparably greater than idols. And to show that, God brings us into a comparison between the power and the strength of idols versus the power and the strength of God here. Which one is greater to save? And he compares the two. God versus idols. And we see this in verses 1 through 7. So first, God argues that idols are worthless to save because they need, and get this, because idols need to be carried by their worshipers. Just think about that for a minute. Idols are worthless to save because they need to be carried by their worshipers. Let me read verse 1 through 2. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. And so God uses two of the more, more, uh, the the greater gods, you might say, of the day, so-called gods, Bel and Nebo in Babylon. And who were these gods? Well, Bel means Lord, and it was an alternative name for Marduk, 
I don't know if that helps you at all. I just thought I'd mention that. He was the chief god of the city of Babylon, the king of the gods, you might say. The Nebo means speaker, and he was supposedly the eldest son of Bel Marduk. And he was the secretary of councils, the scribe, the intellectual. So anyway, you've actually been introduced to these names already if you know anything about Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Notice the Bel and the Nebo. So why are these two gods specifically singled out to represent all the other idols in the world? Why does he point these two out? And I believe the answer is because they, in, in, a, in, a, in a festival that was celebrated in Babylon, would perfectly display the worthlessness of idols in a great way. And so once, in, at, the, at the new year, there was this really popular festival where the gods Bel and Nebo would be transferred throughout the town. And it was the most significant festival of the year. And it was supposed to show their power and the greatness of Babylon and their gods and secure their favor with the gods. So you can imagine the great festivities. You can imagine the, the, the rejoicing that was going on as they would carry these gods throughout the town, Bel and Nebo. Just imagine the enthusiasm. And if you were with them during this festival, you can just imagine how easy it would be to get carried away in the excitement and fail to recognize the irony of what is going on in this festival with these gods. These gods were not leading the people to salvation in any way at all. The only thing they were doing was putting heavy burdens on the people and on the animals. Look at how they're described here. Just the language here is filled with irony. Bel and Nebo are in a sad position. They are humiliated and ashamed, bent over, <laughs> bent over, powerless to do anything. All they do is serve to put a heavy burden on the oxen that are, that are carrying them and leading them through the city. You know, if, if these oxen could speak, they would say, this is a heavy burden. <laughs> this is hard to carry. I'm almost going to fall over from the burden that I'm carrying. They're staggering, about to fall. Not only that, but they can't even save the people when disaster comes. They themselves are brought into captivity. And it's not saying that the gods were literally brought into captivity. It's saying they can't help them. <laughs> they can't help them at all. Babylon would fall and their gods would not be able to stop them. They will in fact join the people in captivity. So what good is a god at saving you if you can't do anything at all? That's the question. I just think about it for a minute. There's a problem here. Any rational person would be able to see that there's a problem with their thinking. How can he save you if he needs to be carried by you? How can he save you if he can't even help himself? How can he strengthen you if he needs to be strengthened himself? This is true of all idols, by the way. All idols are a burden. All idols are the fruit of corruption, and they corrupt you and destroy you. No matter what it is, even the good things in our lives that we make idols that we put in the place of God, they will end up destroying us. That is always, always, always the case. They corrupt and destroy the worshiper. They're a burden 
In comparison to idols who need to be carried by God, listen to this, God argues that he is powerful to save because he carries his worshipers to safety. In verses 3 through 4. God says here in these verses that I have carried you. God reminds his people that he carried them as a loving father who protects and cares for his children. Before they were even born, God was carrying them and taking care of them. From the beginning of their existence as a nation, even in the womb, God carried them. And just think about Abraham to Jacob. Think about Think about Egypt and being delivered from bondage, crossing the Red Sea, throughout the wilderness, the promised land, David and Solomon. God continuing, continuing to carry his people to salvation and to victory. Even in exile, there was a remnant that God had chosen and preserved merely by his grace and his mercy. There, there was no deserving reason for there even to be an ex, a group of people, a remnant there. But God had graciously and kindly preserved them. God is so much unlike an idol. God carries the burden which is the people and he brings them to safety. He is a great savior. Not only has God carried his people in the past, but notice God emphatically says he'll continue to carry them in the future. All the way to the end. And this is the good news, isn't it? And he repeats four times emphatically that he's going to carry them to the end. Listen, I will carry you. I have made you. That's, it's, a, it's almost like changes the whole pattern, right? I will carry you. I have made you. <laughs> I will bury you. I will carry you. I will save you. Emphatically saying, I will carry you. I will lead you. And that making you is so significant as we've studied Isaiah, that God is the creator. Therefore, he will keep you and preserve you. Could God have been more clear than this? Could God have been any more clear than this, that he's going to take care of his people, that he's going to save them, that he's going to bring them to safety? Did you know, child of God, that there's never a moment when God is not carrying you? God has always been carrying you and will continue to carry you every moment by his grace and his kindness. So why does God continuously bear you up? And the answer is, because you are always a child, and God is always the Father, and you are always the creature, and God is always the cre creator. We naturally expect, don't we, for a child to become to a certain age when he is now mature and can do things on his own, no longer needs to be carried. But this will never be, in the, be the case in our relationship with God. There will never be a point when you are mature to where you no longer need God's help. God always cares for you because he is always your father and he's always your creator. And because of your relationship with God, you never outgrow your dependence on God. We are dependent on God as much when we are of old age as we were when we were an infant. We are always just as dependent on God. This is why God calls you to act like children. God calls you to act like a creature. Notice that. Throughout the Bible, God is saying, act like a dependent child. That's spiritual maturity, by the way. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you, Psalm 55, 22. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. God loves to be our father. He loves to treat us like creatures. 
He loves to save us. He loves to show his power and his strength by delivering us. That's how he, how he is glorified and honored. He loves it when we cry out to him with our burdens as his children and as his creatures. Simply treating God as if he was God. That's what it is. And this means you need to be more aware than ever that God is always sustaining you at every moment. That's what we need to understand as believers. We need to understand the greatness of our dependence on God more and more. Are you aware this moment of how God sustains you, both as a physical being and as a spiritual being? God is sustaining you, your faith, and God is sustaining your physical well-being right now. Listen to Acts 17, verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. So after comparing God and how he cares for his people with idols who need to be carried, how then does God compare with idols? Well, we have to conclude with this that God is incomparably great. Comparing God with anything else is utter foolishness. You can't compare him with anything. That's what it says in verse 5, To whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. God is never just great. God is never just greater than anything. There's no degree of greatness in God. He is infinitely greater than all things. He is incomparably great. It is one thing to say, well, this is so much greater. This is incredibly greater. It's another thing to say something is infinitely greater. Kind of like if I were to say an ant hole is incredibly smaller than the Grand Canyon. Well, that is totally unlike God in us. That is totally unlike God in idols. You can't compare them. God is that much greater. So we might think, what a great difference, but God is infinitely greater, incomparably greater than we are. So to say that God is incomparably great means that he is nothing like creation. He is nothing like the, anything on the earth and the seas and the heavens. He is infinitely greater than all these things. No comparison at all. And why is God incomparably great? Because God is the creator. I know we keep coming back to these same points, but we need to keep reminding of them. Creator means he stands outside of creation. I've said that over and over and over again, but we still don't understand that. We don't understand that God is outside of creation. That God is not like his creation. He transcends any imagery we could ever give. To attempt to make anything comparable to God is absurd. And although we might not think we do, we are all the time comparing things to God. Do you realize that? We need to fight to keep this in our minds because we are constantly comparing things to God. And whenever we bow down and worship anything, whenever we treat anything like God, we are saying that this is greater than God. We have made our comparison, we've made our charts, and we've said this thing that has been created is greater than the God who created it. What an incredibly astounding thought that we would ever do anything like that. We might turn to comfort, to food, to success, to money. What an absurd thing that we would ever Put anything in the place of God in our lives. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, what is the place deserving of God? Remember what, God, what Jesus said? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's what it means to have God in his rightful place in our lives, right? And whenever we exchange him with other things, that is idolatry. After making this comparison, God shows us in a humorous way and a sad way, I would add, how foolish and worthless idols are to save. Verses 6 through 7. Just this incredibly humorous, sadly humorous picture of idolatry. And it's a great conclusion to what we've looked at to show the worthlessness of idols. And if you wanted to make an idol, what would you do? You would, you would, you would find a craftsman who would make one for you. And you would hire him to do that for you. And that's exactly what's going on here. He puts together this. I'm sure it was beautiful. It took a lot of money. And he builds this incredible craftsmanship. It looks great. There's nothing wrong with the material. There's nothing wrong in itself with what he's made. The issue with idolatry is not with the idol itself, but what is done with the idol. This person worships the idol they just created as if it was God. The created object is being compared to God himself. There is nothing more tragic and sad than that. And notice the comic relief that is given here of how this dependent God, so-called God, is worshipped. They have to lift the idol on their shoulder. Think about that. They have to lift it on their shoulder to carry it because it cannot move. They have to set in its place, and it just stands there. <laughs> it's not going anywhere, right? Because it can't do anything. How absurd. It's stuck. If someone were to cry, to you, cry out to it, it couldn't answer. It couldn't answer. You cry all day, all night. It can't do anything. Because it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. How can something that is completely dependent on you save you? <laughs> Idolatry is utterly insane it's the height of insanity so how should we respond to this incomparable god if god is incomparably great what should you do well listen to what it says here first you need to recognize the condition you are in that you are not righteous you are idolatrous a transgressor stubborn of heart not even close to righteousness we read this in verses 8 and verse 12 Notice the harsh language that is used to describe what we are like here. You are stubborn like a mule. You won't listen to the one who is directing and guiding you. You are slow to believe God and his promises. And we are quick to believe the promises of this world. You are far from righteousness, not because righteousness is far away from you, but because you're blind and dead. Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And this language might sound surprisingly harsh, especially when we just read that God carries his people. You might say, how could he speak to us this way after telling us that God carries them and loves them? And some people really think that such language is unloving. But this language is not unloving. This language is supremely loving. <laughs> Rebukes are the most loving thing we can hear when we are headed towards the fire. And the problem is not with God, it's with us. If you're prone to turn from God, you need to hear this rebuke. Are you prone to turn from God? This is for your benefit. 
You can see how God cares for his people and his rebuke through Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hoed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If we are creating cisterns for ourselves that cannot contain water and denying the one that does, then we need to be rebuked. We need to hear God's word of rebuke to us that is loving and gracious and kind. And I think you can understand the need for rebuke very well when you hear the way C.S. Lewis depicts Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of children's series. In that series, Christ is figured as a lion. And one scene, a girl named Jill bursts into an opening in a forest, and she's really thirsty. She spies a stream not far away, but she doesn't rush forward to throw her face into its refreshing current. Instead, she freezes in fear because a lion is resting in the sun right beside the stream. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered, this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were hungry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. The only fountain is Jesus, right? And you need to embrace the rebukes of God if you are ever to drink from his well. Second, you need to remember, call to mind the truth of the supremacy of God, that he alone can save you. Notice it says, remember this and stand firm. The problem is we forget God all the time. It's not talking about not knowing who he is. It's not that kind of forgetting, as we've said over and over again. But it's the simple truths losing their centrality in our hearts and our minds. And having control over our lives. That's what it means to forget God. And the world is not going to help you remember these truths. And the only antidote for unbelief is to remember. So what should we remember about God? You should remember what he has done in the past and what that tells us about who God is. Remember the former things of old, verse 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. God wants his people to go sift through history, his word, what he has done, and remember who God is. This involves creation, the flood, the patriarchs, the exodus, all that God has done. It reveals who God is. But for us, we have so much more we can remember, don't we? We have the miracles of Jesus, his healings, his casting out of demons. We have his death primarily and chiefly, and his resurrection, and his ascension. We have so much more that we can call to our minds. And on top of this, you can remember that you have been carried by God this far to safety. 
Remember how God has carried you. Remember how God has taken care of you and loved you. Even rebuked you along the way. Praise God. Remembering helps us break the hold that idolatry has on our lives. You know, if we remember God and we respond, we know we're remembering God when we are thankful people, by the way. We know we're remembering God when we are thankful and rejoicing in who God is. And idolatry has no power over us. It has no power. It cannot hold sway over us when we are thankful and rejoicing people. And that's why we need to continually remind ourselves of who God is through his past works and his character. Remembering these things reminds you that he is the one and only supreme God and that he always, based on the fact, I should say, that he always fulfills his desire. When you look at the past, you will see that God always fulfills his desire, that history is God's history, and that he constantly fulfills every purpose that he pursues. Remembering the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The word in verse 10 is frequently translated, the word for will is frequently translated pleasure, such as Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. What separates a true God from everything else is that he always accomplishes his purposes and his desires throughout history because God is standing outside of history. He's not one with creation. He is outside of creation. He is the creator. What he promises, both of destruction and salvation, always comes to pass. When he predicts the future, he orchestrates things to bring that future about because he's over it and in charge of it. And this tells us that God is the supreme God. You can therefore know that he'll continue to bring his word to pass. That's what verse 11 tells us. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And the bird of prey is obviously Cyrus. and He's going to swoop down and take his prey. And that will all be God's will. And notice the inseparable connection here between his word and what comes to pass. That's what you need to understand from verse 11, is that what God says will always come to pass. There's an inseparable connection there. So long as God is God, his word will always come to pass. Third, you need to respond to God's provision of righteousness that he has brought near by turning to him in faith. God has brought his righteousness near. We are unrighteous. He shows us throughout history that he is God and that he is supreme God. And he has given us a provision of righteousness. He has brought it near. And we must respond in faith and trust to God and his salvation that he has brought. I will bring near my righteousness, verse 13. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. God is emphatic here. I will save. Notice the I, my, I, my, I, my. <laughs> he does it. It's his salvation. He brings it to pass. How is God determined to save? Well, God is determined to save by bringing his righteousness and salvation near. Unlike God, we do not act in righteousness. And the reason is because we are not righteous inside of us. It's not like we do unrighteous things here and there. It's because we at our very core are unrighteous people from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. The source of the river is polluted. The river will be polluted as well. This means that if we are to be right with God, 
He must bring his righteousness to us. There is no way we can come to his righteousness on our own. His righteousness must come to us by his grace from the outside, from his gracious intervention. And that is why we talk about an alien righteousness. We're not talking about aliens. We're talking about something outside of us that must be brought to us. How has God brought his righteousness near? Well, for Israel, there's a sense where God is saying that he is going to deliver them through Cyrus and fulfill his deliverance and his promise to them. But we know ultimately the deliverance is through Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate deliverance. This is the good news of the gospel that God has brought his righteousness near. There's nothing we need more than righteousness and God has brought it near through Jesus Christ. Justification, being made right with God, that's what justification means. When we say that, it means to be made in a right standing with God. Comes only through faith in Christ Jesus. And faith comes through hearing his word. Those who turn from their idols to God in faith will be saved. Remember, God's word always is inseparable from what happens. It always comes to pass. And we can know that what God has promised, that he will fulfill. So what is an idol? An idol is anything bad or good that we elevate in God's place. Anything that we have put in the place of the creator. It's saying that the gift is greater than the giver. That's what idolatry is. How do you identify idols? It is that what you think about the most, are most passionate about in life, is what you worship. What you think about the most, what you're most passionate about, what you love the most, is what you worship. It is where you chiefly turn for comfort, hope, and peace, and joy. It's where you turn for safety, security, and comfort. It's that thing that if you lose, your whole life falls apart. For someone, for instance, I'm not good, good, really good with grades, so uh, this doesn't apply to me, but if you get a bad grade, your whole life falls apart, right? Well, that probably tells you that your grades are more significant than they should be, right? It's not saying that you can't be a little disappointed. That's okay. It's probably good. <laughs> but for your whole life to fall apart means you place something in God's place. And that means it's a God. And know this. If it's not the true God that you are worshiping, that it will lead you to destruction. It is a burden on your life and it will lead you to destruction. So what are you worshiping today? What are you worshiping? What is chief in your life? Is it health? Is it money? Is it success? Is it pornography? Or is it God? And he will not share his position with anyone. Only God can save and he will save you if you look to him. A loving God calls you to repent of your idolatry. How gracious is God today? This is good. He calls you to turn to him. How good is that? This is for your good and for your salvation. And we must come to him on his terms. Come to God today on his terms. Bow to God. He alone can save you. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your gracious reminders today. Lord, we are so easily led astray by the idols of this world. And so easily do we drink of the cesspool of this world, Lord, thinking that we are somehow going to be saved and we are somehow going to be preserved. God, Lord, deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us from our constant desire to justify ourselves, to save ourselves, Lord, to, um, to declare ourselves innocent, God. Lord, only you are righteous. 
And God, I pray that you today would free us from our idols. I pray that you deliver us, Lord, from our sin. Lord, may you deliver us, Lord. We need a mighty God, and you are the only God. You are the incomparable God. And thank you that you have brought us a righteousness, a salvation that is not our own through Jesus Christ. Thank you for your death and your resurrection and the life that you give to us, Lord. We are eternally indebted, and so we want to eternally be grateful today for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.